No shouten qui remansimus, exeunte sinde intraavimus in diabolica montana. We who remained set out and began to cross over a diabolical mountain. Which was so high and precipitous that none of us dared go around another man on the track that lay along the side of the mountain. Horses fell off headlong, and one lead horse dragged down others with it. And the warriors stood wretchedly, wringing their hands in misery and agony, not knowing what to do with themselves and their arms. They wanted to sell their shields and splendid hauberks with helmets, for no more than three or five dinars, or whatever they could get. Those who found no buyer simply threw them away and went on their way. When we came through that execrable mountain, we came to a city called Marash. The inhabitants of that city came out and joyfully met our men and brought us a great supply of things. Thereafter, our warriors came into that valley in which the royal city of Antioch is situated, which is the capital of all Syria, and which the Lord Jesus Christ gave to Peter the Blessed, the Prince of the Apostles. So that it might be restored to the religion of the holy faith. Through him who abides and reigns with God the Father, in the unity of the Holy Spirit of God. From age to age. Amen. Hello and welcome to History of the Ultramare, episode 2.25, Up and Around. A quick reminder, if you're on Spotify or iTunes or really any other podcast app or whatever, go ahead and give me a five-star review. This is Uber Rules. Anything less than five is apparently a vote of no confidence. So just go ahead and give me those stars. Today, we'll be covering the approach of the main army towards Antioch. 
Last time, we covered the misadventures of Tancred and Baldwin and Cilicia. They'd taken the direct route towards Antioch, coming out of the Belen Pass in October of 1097, roughly. I mentioned that the bulk of the army had instead traveled north to avoid a possible ambush coming out of Cilicia through the Belen Pass. This might only be part of the reason why they went north and around. So, let's assume that at this point the Crusaders were pursuing a joint Franco-Byzantine strategy, in which the Crusaders were the point of contact between the Empire and locals, in this region mostly Armenians, who often had a slight preference for the heretic Greeks over the infidel Turks. Uh, as a side note, in reality, religion was a part of it, but it was more a question of lifestyle. The nomads had different priorities from the sedentary locals, and the way nomadic steppe political structures worked, leaders couldn't really ensure that local cities and towns wouldn't be raided. The Romans at least tried to provide protection. So for Armenian city dwellers, it was much better to be under the control of the Romans than under the Turks. Roughly speaking. So, while Tancred and Baldwin were charged with clearing out Cilicia, the rest of the army headed north to work on Cappadocia. To paraphrase from John France in Victory in the East, quote, It is likely that what we see is the development of an Armenian strategy which had been discussed with Alexios, either at Constantinople or at Pelicanum after the fall of Nicaea. As the crusade advanced, many of the cities in their path ejected their Turkish garrison and welcomed the crusaders. In addition, they had contact with Armenians, and at Iconium, Christians gave them intelligence about local conditions. The Crusaders were prepared to confront real opposition in pursuit of what we may call their Armenian strategy, as they advanced towards Caesarea and then turned south to Antioch. End quote. Ensuring that both passes, through Cilicia and through the Anti-Taurus Mountains, were in friendly hands would also make sure that supply chains could easily reach the army at Antioch. What's really clear to me, at least at this point, is that the Franco-Byzantine alliance was looking healthy. Now, I want to make a point about dates here. You might notice that I'm going to be avoiding specifics. Unfortunately, our sources don't really give us any good dates during this period of the crusade. We know that the army left the battlefield at Dorylaeum on the 4th of July, 1097, and that they arrived outside Antioch on the 20th of October. Everything in between is guesswork. I'll be using the estimates given by John France in Victory in the East, because they seem logical to me at least, but even the ranges he gives are debatable. Now, one crucial piece of information I don't think I mentioned last time is that Tancred and Baldwin had actually separated from the army before their expedition into Cilicia. They'd taken different paths across the plateau, and then rejoined the army at Iconium, modern-day Konya, before traveling together to Heraclea, where they split once more. During both splits, Tancred and Baldwin had basically acted as advance guards and made contact with various local powers. They were basically making sure that the Crusading Army's influence was felt a bit wider. This lines up with the comments from both Tancred and Baldwin that Bohemond and Godfrey, respectively, would soon be on their way to Cilicia. The broader strategy seems to have been to target the entire territory once controlled by Filaretos Brahamios, from Melitene to Edessa to Antioch providing the Romans with a solid bulwark from which to root out the Turks from Anatolia, and maybe even take advantage of Seljuk weakness in northern Syria. Anyway, somewhere around the 4th of September, the main army left Heraclea and headed north towards Caesarea, 
modern Gaiseri. As they moved through Cappadocia, the army appears to have targeted a Turk known as Asim, Hassan in the sources actually. He appears to have been the brother of none other than Abul Qasim. For those who don't remember, Abu Qasim had once been a general of Suleiman ibn Qutlumush. Suleiman had left Abu Qasim in charge of Nicaea in the 1080s when he went to Antioch. To remove him from this city, the Byzantine emperor Alexios Komnenos had actually sent an army to work together with forces from the Seljuk Sultan Malik Shah. The Romans had sent an army under Tatikios, who in 1097 was once again acting as a representative of Alexios within a foreign army, this time with the Crusaders. And the Seljuks had sent a force led by Bozan, who was governor of Edessa at the time. I briefly mentioned him last time. And you can hear the whole story by going back to episode 1.16. When Abul Qasim ended up killed, likely by Bozan, that had opened the door up for Suleiman's son, Kilij Arslan, who hadn't been considered for succession because until the death of Malik Shah, he'd been locked up, probably in Baghdad. But then he'd gotten out and basically taken over the entire uh, proto-sultanate of Rum. It seems Abul Qasim had left a brother, Hassan, who'd apparently briefly held Nicaea after his brother, before Kilij Arslan showed up. He'd probably ended up swearing some sort of allegiance to Kilij Arslan. By 1097, he held castles throughout the east of what was once the Roman Empire, and he frequently battled against, as well as allied with, the Danishmans of the area. When the Crusaders arrived at Heraclea, it was in Hassan's hands. Hassan's? No, that doesn't work. Hassan had fled in the face of the Crusading army, along with some Danishmen allies, though the army seems to have decided to chase him down. Stephen of Blois, writing to his wife, Adele, describes the situation in the following way. Next, we conquered for the Lord all Romania, and afterwards Cappadocia. And we learned that there was a certain Turkish prince, Assam, dwelling in Cappadocia. Thither we directed our course. All his castles we conquered by force, and compelled him to flee to a certain very strong castle, situated on a high rock. End quote. Stephen's not wrong here. The Crusaders seem to have done a decent job of clearing out Turkish strongholds in the region. Part of this was no doubt due to their reputation after Nicaea and Dorylaeum. They continued heading up towards a town known as Augustopolis, where they once again encountered Hassan. After a brief skirmish with Hassan, he went running towards a nearby fortress, no doubt the castle Stephen mentions. They left him alone. He'd been thoroughly dealt with, and there was no reason to waste time chasing him down. The various towns and fortresses the army had cleared of Turks were handed over to a local Armenian named Simeon, who was charged with holding them in the name of the Roman Empire. Meanwhile, the Crusaders kept at it. They made it to Caesarea sometime around the 21st of September. Caesarea had been abandoned by the Turks, and so the army just blazed forward towards a city known as Komana, which was under siege from a Turkish force, probably Danishmans. The anonymous author of the Jessafran Quorum says they had been besieging it for three weeks, but apparently they fled before the army even arrived. He just says, quote, As soon as we arrived, it was placed into our hands with great joy. End quote. So, yeah. The city was actually handed over for a Frank to hold, Peter of Alps, who appears to have also agreed to hold it in the name of the empire, like Simeon the Armenian. Peter was actually already in the service of the Byzantines. He hadn't come with the crusade. He'd fought for Giscar during the invasion of the empire, and like many Normans, when Alexius had given them the option to defect, he'd done so, and served the empire for 
roughly 10, 15 years now. Again, we can see the development of a very prosperous agreement uh, between the Franks and the Romans. Good for them, working together, solving things, you know, one big happy family. By now, the army was entering the mountain range. Some news came that the Turkish army, which had been besieging Komana, had been spotted, and so Bolman separated from the army in an attempt to chase them down. The rest of the army headed towards Kokson, modern Guksun, where the late 4th century church father, once Archbishop of Constantinople, John Chrysostom, had served out part of his exile in the anti-Taurus mountain range. Raymond of Saint-Gilles appears to have been sick for some time, but at Coxon he made a full recovery, and appears to not have been too happy about what had been going on. So, last time we gave multiple theories about why Tancred and Baldwin had been sent into Cilicia. Whatever the real reason was, if they were working for the army as a whole, the Byzantine Empire, or just setting out on their own, the fact that they acted as proxies for Bohemond and Godfrey did not evade Raymond. Who was going to represent him? He must have felt he was losing his hold on the crusading effort. Remember, he was very proud of having been closely connected to the papal legate, Ademar, but now it seems Raymond's influence was fading. Bohemond was off chasing Turkish ghosts, and Godfrey had been injured by the bear attack. He was probably still recovering. So soon enough, an opportunity for the king of Le Midi arose. As the anonymous author puts it, quote, we came to a certain city named Kokson, in which there was a great abundance of all goods that we were in need of, and thus the Christians, that is, those that lived in the city, at once surrendered to us, and we lived very well there for three days, and our men greatly recovered. Then Count Raymond, hearing that the Turks who held Antioch had withdrawn, took counsel and decided to send some of his warriors that they might quickly occupy it. He chose those men who could do this, namely the Viscount Peter of Castiglioni, William of Montpellier, Peter of Rossa, Peter Raymond of Poul, along with 500 warriors. And they came to a valley near Antioch, where stood a castle of the Paulicians. And there they heard that the Turks in the city were preparing to defend it strongly. Then Peter of Rossa separated from the rest, and the following night, as he approached Antioch, he entered into the valley of Rugia, where he found Turks and Saracens. He fought them, and killed many of them, and chased the rest into wild flight. And when the Armenians, who lived in that land, saw that he had so bravely defeated the pagans, they surrendered to him at once. Thus he took the city of Rusa, as well as many castles." End quote. So basically, a rumor reached the army that Antioch had been abandoned, and Raymond scrambled to get his forces there first. The rumor turned out to be false, but Raymond's advance guard was able to take the nearby city of Rusa and a few castles in the area. They'd also made contact with a group of Paulicians. That's an Armenian Christian sect. Well, originally Armenian. There were Paulicians throughout uh, the Middle East, as well as Thrace, and I think in other parts of Europe at this time. They're named after Paul the Apostle, and considered heretical by Orthodox Christians. Though, something tells me that the Crusaders were willing to overlook that fact. We will get into it in the future, obviously, but the Siege of Antioch will be the most divisive event of the Crusade. And already, even before it had begun, it was enticing Crusade leaders to act in their own interests and seek out their own ties with locals. As Raymond's forces sped ahead to Antioch, the rest of the army prepared to finish their mountain crossing. Down from Coxon, the pass was treacherous. Here, I will direct you to the opening, taken straight from the Justifrancorum. 
It details the horror of the passage, which included horses just straight falling off the fucking mountain. Uh, I keep saying army, but remember that there are still tons of regular folks along for the ride. Just a while back, women were given birth and leaving their babies for dead on the road. Now they're falling off the fucking mountainside. Shit was fucked. Again, the army's worst enemy was Mother Nature, as the cursed mountain took more lives than the Turks had ever done. Finally, though, they made it out of the anti-Taurus mountains. The passage through Cappadocia may have been intended to return the lands to Roman control, but their efforts, though mostly successful, weren't really the foundation for more long-term objectives. The army had had to rush to make it across the mountains before winter, and so they hadn't bothered to properly chase down Hamas or any of the other Turkish forces around. They hadn't even made contact with Gabriel of Melitene, though soon enough, Gabriel would be reaching out to the Franks. But we'll get to that in time. In short, pressing on towards Antioch became more important than making sure Cappadocia was returned to Byzantine control. After coming out of the Anti-Tauruses, the army soon came to Marash. At that time, under the control of a certain Tatul, an Armenian, who was apparently loyal to Alexios. Or at least he was after a huge army representing Alexios showed up. It was now roughly mid-October, and that was when Baldwin of Boulogne rejoined the army. He'd probably come because his wife was on her deathbed. Surprisingly, Fulcher of Chartres, who was Baldwin's chaplain, doesn't say anything about this. Only Albert of Aachen mentions it. Quote, Baldwin had brought his noble wife from her English homeland, and in this region of Marash, her bodily ills daily grew worse. She was entrusted to Duke Godfrey, but she breathed her last and was buried with Christian rites. Her name was Godevere. So, according to Albert, it seems like Baldwin didn't make it in time to see his wife on her deathbed. The passage of the Crusaders thus far has been full of death, and many more will be dying. But this death in particular seems particularly cruel to me. Godevere is almost silent. Her name is appended to the end of her death as almost an afterthought. She was probably an English noble married to Baldwin after the Norman Conquest. Remember, Baldwin's father had played a key role in that expedition. She was then dragged along on this pilgrimage. Although, who knows if she was pious and excited about it, or maybe she was forced to go. And then she died of illness at some random town thousands of miles from home, far from many loved ones. I guess her brother-in-law, Godfrey, was there. Well, we've got more sad stories to tell. Baldwin seems to have decided to continue his independent expedition after meeting up with the army at Marash. His wife was dead. He had no more ties to his homeland. What's more, his behavior in Cilicia had likely made him somewhat unpopular. Bowman seems to have still not caught up to the army. Remember, he was off chasing some Turks, some Donishmans probably. So maybe Baldwin decided to get the fuck out of Dodge before having to explain to the Italo-Norman head honcho why he'd let 300 Italo-Norman knights get butchered in the night outside Tarsus. So Baldwin headed east from Marash with a handful of knights. We'll catch up with him in a couple episodes. Meanwhile, the rest of the army recharged their batteries at Marash. At some point, Bohemian rejoined them, and then the army headed down towards Antioch. The approach to Antioch had been carefully planned. The taking of Cilicia and the clearing of the northern route had made sure that the crusaders' flank was protected. Now they set about making sure that their position around Antioch would be too. A key element here was a city known as Arta, which Ralph of Caen called the Shield of Antioch. 
Its position was crucial to protecting the army from assaults as they surrounded Antioch. Albert of Aachen describes the expedition to take Arta, with ridiculous numbers by the way. Quote, when they left the mountain and region of Marash, with all their troop following, the aforesaid leaders learned from some Christians of Syria who met them that the town of Arta was not far away, rich in the necessities of life, but occupied by the Turks. When he learned of this, Robert of Flanders rose from the army, taking with him some men who were very careful in warfare and a thousand armored men. And they went down to the town of Arta, which was very well fortified, with a wall and ramparts and a turreted fortress, and where the Turks had brought the remaining Armenian Christians under the yoke of slavery. And so, as they approached the city and its ramparts, holding bright, beautiful banners of every color, their bronze helmets shining as brightly as gold, the news of their arrival alarmed the whole region. The Turks who were on the ramparts of Arta and in the fortress intending to defend and resist stood stock still, terrified at this sudden attack by the Gauls, and they secured the town gates with a bar and bolts. The Armenian citizens, whom those same Turks had long oppressed with slavery and who were now with them within these same defenses, called to mind the injustices which they had borne from those same Turks for a long time the rape of their wives and daughters, the other crimes they committed, the levying of unjust tributes, and now relying on the arrival and support of the Christians, they attacked the Turks and killed them with the sword's edge. They cut off their heads and threw them from the windows and walls, and opening the city gates to their Christian brothers, they delivered up a safe entrance by their massacre of the Gentiles, by their throwing out of dead bodies. They let in their faithful brothers courteously and received them with every proper ceremony, relieving them of their weapons and packs in a friendly way and refreshing them with different foods and pleasing drinks and detaining them with agreeable hospitality. And they provided their horses and mules adequately with fodder. The distance from where the city stands to Antioch is reckoned to be 10 miles. The news of this latest slaughter of Turks sped the distance on winged feet and summoned Turks from Antioch and from all their territories. Some 20,000 of them gathered to the aforesaid fortification of Arta. 30 of the more cunning and nimble out of these thousands of Turks, riding horses which galloped like the wind, went ahead as a trick, leaving behind them in ambush the entire legion, so as to be able to provoke and draw out the Gauls from the fortress using the bow of horn and bone. The Gauls, of course, knowing nothing of the tricks and hidden ambush, went out on foot and on horseback, armed and armored, and met them in the middle of the plain to do battle with their enemies. But no successful outcome was possible for them in any conflict, for the Turks, who lay in ambush across the route, took the road before them in a great horde, so that the Gauls, who had come out and had no way of returning or taking refuge in the city, would be killed instantly. When he saw this sudden and unexpected attack, Robert of Flanders and Roger and the other army chiefs, after warning their comrades forcefully and gathering as one, sped on a tight rein from the level plain through the middle of the dense Turkish battle lines and charged the enemy with lances held rigid. The whole company also charged with such manly boldness that they escaped from the enemy's hands unharmed inside the gates and ramparts. The Turks pursued the men who had escaped inside the gates with the hail of a thousand arrows, trying to enter the gates with them. But they were pushed back from the threshold by a strong, though small, band, and they were in no way allowed to enter the gates with the Gauls. Many armed men, both cavalry and infantry, were wounded on this side and that in the sudden bombardment of arrows, also mules and horses. 
The Turks, therefore, seeing that they had not succeeded and still trusting in their numbers, decided on a siege around the aforesaid city. But the faithful people shut inside remained safe and calm because they had a sufficient supply of food discovered in the fortress, and the strength of the walls was sure and unassailable. End quote. So now this little detachment led by Robert of Flanders was basically trapped inside Arta, but not for long. I'll let Albert finish his story. Quote, Meanwhile, it was not long before the great army of Christians hastened on their journey. Spies were lurking among them who saw their chance and withdrew themselves secretly from the army. They reported to the Turks what they had heard and found out about the approach and the plans of the Christian army. These informers, hearing that news from Arta of their comrade's siege had reached the ears of the princes Godfrey, Bohemond, and the rest, and that they had made a plan to rescue them, returned in haste to the Turkish camp, announcing that the Romans, Franks, and Germans were already close and were coming nearer, and the Turks could neither withstand their forces nor be rescued from their hands unless they left the town and returned to their own defenses. Yet the Turks were not at all terrified by these dark warnings. Their very many thousands made them overconfident, and they attacked the city throughout every hour of one day, and worked on many assaults. But they squandered the effort in vain, as the Gauls fought back resolutely from the citadel on the ramparts. Then when night returned, and darkness was falling, the Turks held many councils among themselves, and a plan was devised that as first dawn appeared, they would set about returning to the bridge on the river Orontes, and they would safely enter the city of Antioch, which was made secure by towers and walls and could not be overcome by human forces. And with the bridge and river defended from the Christian army, they would not suffer the danger to their lives of being conquered. The aforesaid Turks had only just snuck into Antioch when, at dusk on the following day, the great army of Christians pitched camp in the district of Arta, spending night there in happiness and joy. There, on the decree of the leaders, 1,500 armored men were chosen and sent to Arta to the assistance of their comrades who were in the citadel, so that in this way they might retreat safe and sound to the main army with their strength and forces combined and worry less about enemy attack on the journey together. With the town of Arta defended by the faithful protection of the Christians, they returned to the army without any trouble. End quote. So, the shield of Antioch had been taken, and presumably left in the control of Armenian Christians. Raymond of Sanji's advance force had also taken the southern routes to the city, and soon Tancred rejoined the army. Now, last time we talked about Tancred, he was at Mamistra, barely avoiding a full-on conflict with Baldwin of Boulogne. Afterwards, Tancred seems to have headed to the southwest, taking control of some coastal cities, including Alexandretta. The Knights of the First Crusade laid siege to the city of Alexandretta for over a year. Yes, this is that Alexandretta from Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. So here we have Alexandretta's role in the First Crusade. Despite what Indy would have you think is a small one, Tancred certainly wasn't the one to leave any maps to the Holy Grail here. But it did put more pressure on Antioch, as now the city was cut off from the northern Syrian coastline. In short, Antioch was surrounded, and apart from Baldwin, the army had regrouped. As Albert of Aachen puts it, quote, After they had gathered in one body, from that day onwards, they were not separated, because of the Turks' countless forces, who having fled from the mountains and all Romania, had hastened for defense to the city of Antioch, which was unassailable. Without delay, Bishop Ademar of Le Puy, making a speech to the people, gave them all a fatherly warning and told them, with encouragement of this sort, to which the present emergency and constant news from nearby Antioch were driving him. 
O oh, dearest brothers and sisters and sons and daughters, be sure that the very nearby town of Antioch, as we have on good authority, is secured with a very strong defensive wall, which cannot be broken down with iron or by stone throwing, being built in an unheard of way. In it, we understand without a doubt that all the enemies of the Christian name, Turks, Saracens, Arabs, have come together, fleeing before us out of the mountains of Romania and from every direction. For this reason, we must be extremely careful not to make any further division of our men or rashly to go on ahead. But we have made a limited decision on the wisest advice that tomorrow we shall travel in one single-minded force as far as the bridge on the Orontes. End quote. The army then advanced towards Antioch. Now we have to talk a bit about Antioch. For a quick recap, Antioch had been captured by the Muslim Rashidun Caliphate in 635 AD. It had remained in Muslim hands for over three centuries, until 969, when the Roman general Mikhail Burtzis had taken it. If you recall from episode 1.3, this had actually led to Burtzis' firing and his later participation in the plot to murder Nikiforos, the emperor. Remember the bearskin rug? Anyway, the Romans had held on to Antioch for over a century, until the Battle of Manskirt. During this time, they had encouraged Christian immigration to the city, and it had become a prosperous Armenian city, primarily. In 1072, after the Battle of Manzikert, it had fallen into the hands of Filaretos Brahamios. Then, 12 years later, it had somehow passed to Suleiman ibn Kutlumush. Remember that whole drama? Suleiman had had a close relationship with Alexios Komnenos, so he might have been acting under Byzantine orders when he took the city. But who knows? Just two years later, Suleiman had gotten himself killed in battle against Tutush, the brother of the Seljuk Sultan. Tutush had then somewhat taken the city, but shortly after, his big brother Malik Shah had come to town and put it under the control of a Turkmen commander named Yagisiyan. Just eight years later, in 1092, Malik Shah had died, so Yagisiyan had sworn allegiance to Tutush, who also got himself killed two years later, in 1094. So for the three years between 1094 and 1097, Yagi Siyan had basically done his best to remain independent, mostly by playing Tutush's sons, Ridwan in Aleppo and Dukak in Damascus, against each other. Unsurprisingly then, no one cared about Yagi Siyan, and no one really made much of an effort to help him out when he started sending frantic appeals for aid as a force of barbarian westerners headed towards him. The only remaining obstacle was the Iron Bridge, the fortified crossing point of the Orontes River, which was 12 miles to the east of Antioch and ran parallel to the coastline. We will be talking more about the very particular nature of Antiochian geography next time. However, I have uploaded a map to the website. We'll also be talking about the various options the army had to take Antioch at that moment. But no matter what, taking the Iron Bridge was essential. So that's what they set out to do. They reached the bridge on the 20th of October, finally a concrete date. I'll let Albert of Aachen take it from here. Quote, They set out in one convoy, confident of their armed strength, to the bridge on the river Orontes, leaving behind them the high mountains and valleys of very pleasing, very rich Romania. On this day, in fact, Robert, Count of Normandy, was appointed to go in advance of the army with his thousands, as is the custom in every well-conducted army, so that if any opposition force had hidden, it would be reported to the generals and leaders of the Christian army, and they would hasten to put on weapons and armor and take up battle formations as quickly as possible. This aforesaid bridge took the form of an arch of wonderful craft and ancient workmanship beneath which the river Farfar of Damascus, 
commonly called orantes, scoured the riverbed with its very swift flow. On each side of the bridge, two towers overhung, indestructible by iron and perfectly adapted for defense, in which there was always a garrison of Turks. A company of 2,000 infantry followed after these distinguished men, and they also took up position at the bridge, not being allowed to cross. For the Turks, of whom a hundred or so had been posted in the bridge towers to defend them, were fighting back vigorously with bows and a hail of arrows against those who were wanting to cross. They struck the horses with frequent wounds, they pierced with flying arrows, very many of the horses' riders, through the covering of their hauberks. A serious dispute arose on this side and that, with these men wanting to cross, those on the other side fiercely forbidding the crossing, and so far, winning. 700 Turks, who had been summoned and had come out from Antioch, seeing their men's steadfastness and defense on the bridge, galloped up on swift horses, very excited by the battle, and took possessions of the fords to stop any of the Christians from being able to cross. The Christian cavalry and infantry, seeing the forces of armored Turks spread out for defense on the riverbanks, themselves spread out widely on the other bank, and as on both sides arrows were twisted and loosed in bold endeavor, the struggle was a long one. Very many men and horses were shot on both banks, and fatally wounded were falling and failing. At last, when the Turks were emerging very much the winners and were outdoing and outlasting in the accuracy and effectiveness of their arrows, the army of the faithful, provided with weapons and horses, came quickly from all parts to the assistance of the comrades they had sent in advance. But even then, the Turks did not retreat from the bank. They preferred to die rather than to yield, resisting those who wanted to cross with an unceasing assault of arrows. The Bishop of Le Puy heard of this serious conflict, so he went before the great army. He saw that the hearts of his men were weak from fear and failed them a little because of the injuries to the horses and the wounds to their own chests. So he addressed the people and strengthened them for defense in the name of the living God. Thus, you should not fear the enemy's attack. Stand firm, rise against these tormenting dogs. For now, today, God will fight for you. At these words and warnings of so distinguished a bishop, a shield roof was made, and they attacked the bridge boldly. The enemy withdrew their lances from the bridge and took flight. Some Christians, seeing that the whole army had come to their aid, put too great a reliance on them, and they entered the fords and swam their horses across. Others, discovering the fords on foot, made haste to cross the waters, because they were keen to wage war. Although they sustained wounds from blows and slingshots, they attacked the Turks in a blind assault and put them to flight from their position. Then they stationed themselves on dry land on the other side of the river. The divisions of faithful and infidels were completely mixed up in the violent attack, and they grew hot with the exertion of battle. The slaughter and massacre grew worse. Bohemond, Godfrey, Raymond, Robert, and Roger governed the battle order and the war standards, which were of many colors and very beautiful until the Turks, taking flight on swiftest horses, turned back to Antioch, speeding their way through the steep mountain slopes and places known to them. The Christian victors turned back from pursuit and very great slaughter of their adversaries, and they chased the enemy no further, because the ramparts of Antioch seemed to be much too near, and the forces of all the Gentiles had poured in there, and they spent the night next to the river Orontes. They collected plunder and spoils from everywhere, and they freed from chains very many of Peter's army, whom the Turks had kept apart all over the region of Antioch. When Yagi Siyan, prince and chief of the city, heard this bad news and the turn of events against his men, 
His expression was downcast. His heart was worn down by fear, and he was weighed down by great sorrows, turning his mind to different solutions. What should he do so that the same thing would not happen to him as it happened to Suleiman when he lost the town of Nicaea? Without delay, brooding over very many different plans, he plotted ceaselessly to bring in food, to collect together weapons and troops of allies, and he went on protecting the gates and ramparts with a trusty and safe garrison. End quote. An interesting point is that Albert mentions finding captives from Peter's army, meaning the Peasants' Crusade. Apparently, they had been sold to owners in the region of Antioch as slaves. Imagine being a random German, signing up for a pilgrimage, getting captured by Turks, ferried across Anatolia, sold to a Syrian, and then rescued by another random group of Franks, including the guy you'd followed east. That's quite the experience. I, I want that, like, biopic. Turning back to the army, they now had Antioch within arm's reach. But once more, their greatest threat would turn out to be not the Turks, but Mother Nature. As winter set in, and the army found itself besieging an impregnable city. Next time on History of the Uchmer, we cover the first bit of the Siege of Antioch, as the army struggles to break through the city's defenses, and as hope dies, the alliance with the Roman Empire begins to unravel. <laughs> <laughs>